Section 1 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 6, Part 2, The Man in the Iron Mask. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 6, Part 2, The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. Section 1. For nearly one hundred years this curious problem has exercised the imagination of writers of fiction and of drama and the patience of the learned in history. No subject is more obscure and elusive, and none more attractive to the general mind. It is a legend to the meaning of which none can find the key, and yet in which every one believes. Involuntarily we feel pity at the thought of that long captivity surrounded by so many extraordinary precautions, and when we dwell on the mystery which enveloped the captive, that pity is not only deepened, but a kind of terror takes possession of us. It is very likely that if the name of the hero of this gloomy tale had been known at the time, he would now be forgotten. To give him a name would be to relegate him at once to the ranks of those commonplace offenders who quickly exhaust our interest and our tears. But this being, cut off from the world without leaving any discoverable trace, and whose disappearance apparently caused no void, this captive, distinguished among captives by the unexampled nature of his punishment, a prison within a prison, as if the walls of a mere cell were not narrow enough, has come to typify for us the sum of all the human misery and suffering ever inflicted by unjust tyranny. Who was the man in the iron mask? Was he wrapped away into this silent seclusion from the luxury of a court, from the intrigues of diplomacy, from the scaffold of a traitor, from the clash of a battle? What did he leave behind? love glory or a throne what did he regret when hope had fled did he pour forth imprecations and curses on his tortures and blaspheme against heaven or did he with a sigh possess his soul in patience the blows of fortune are differently received according to the different characters of those on whom they fall and each one of us who in imagination threads the subterranean passages leading to the cells of pignerol and exil and incarcerates himself in the ile saint marguerite and in the bastille the successive scenes of that long protracted agony will give the prisoner a form shaped by his own fancy and a grief proportioned to his own power of suffering how we long to pierce the thoughts and feel the heart-beats and watch the trickling tears behind that machine-like exterior that impassable mask our imagination is powerfully excited by the dumbness of that fate borne by one whose words never reached the outward air whose thoughts could never be read on the hidden features and by the isolation of forty years secured by twofold barriers of stone and iron and she closed the object of her contemplation in majestic splendour connects the mystery which enveloped his existence with mighty interests and persists in regarding the prisoner as sacrificed for the preservation of some dynastic secret involving the peace of the world and the stability of a throne and when we calmly reflect on the whole case do we feel that our first impulsively adopted opinion was wrong do we regard our belief as a poetical illusion i do not think so on the contrary it seems to me that our good sense approves our fancy's flight for what can be more natural than the conviction that the secret of the name, age, and features of the captive, which was so perseveringly kept through long years at the cost of so much care, was of vital importance to the government? No ordinary human passion, such as anger, hate, or vengeance, has so dogged and enduring a character. We feel that the measures taken were not the expression of a love of cruelty, for even supposing that Louis the Fourteenth were the most cruel of princes, 
would he not have chosen one of the thousand methods of torture ready to his hand before inventing a new and strange one? Moreover, why did he voluntarily burden himself with the obligation of surrounding a prisoner with such numberless precautions and such sleepless vigilance? Must he not have feared that in spite of it all the walls behind which he concealed the dread mystery would one day let in the light? Was it not through his entire reign a source of unceasing anxiety? And yet he respected the life of the captive whom it was so difficult to hide, and the discovery of whose identity would have been so dangerous. It would have been so easy to bury the secret in an obscure grave, and yet the order was never given. Was this an expression of hate, anger, or any other passion? Certainly not. The conclusion we must come to in regard to the conduct of the king is that all the measures he took against the prisoner were dictated by purely political motives, that his conscience, while allowing him to do everything necessary to guard the secret, did not permit him to take the further step of putting an end to the days of an unfortunate man, who in all probability was guilty of no crime. Courtiers are seldom obsequious to the enemies of their master so that we may regard the respect and consideration shown to the man in the iron mask by the governor St. Mars and the minister Louvois as a testimony, not only to his high rank, but also to his innocence. For my part, I make no pretensions to the erudition of the bookworm, and I cannot read the history of the man in the iron mask without feeling my blood boil at the abominable abuse of power, the heinous crime of which he was the victim. A few years ago, Monsieur Fournier and I, thinking the subject suitable for representation on the stage, undertook to read, before dramatizing it, all the different versions of the affair which had been published up to that time. Since our piece was successfully performed at the Odeon, two other versions have appeared. One was in the form of a letter addressed to the Historical Institute by M. Billard, who upheld the conclusions arrived at by Soulevy, on whose narrative our play was founded. The other was a work by the bibliophile Jacob, who followed a new system of inquiry, and whose book displayed the results of deep research and extensive reading. It did not, however, cause me to change my opinion. Even had it been published before I had written my drama, I should still have adhered to the idea as to the most probable solution of the problem which I had arrived at in 1831, not only because it was incontestably the most dramatic, but also because it is supported by those moral presumptions which have such weight with us when considering a dark and doubtful question like the one before us. It will be objected, perhaps, that dramatic writers, in their love of the marvellous and the pathetic, neglect logic and strain after effect, their aim being to obtain the applause of the gallery rather than the approbation of the learned. But to this it may be replied that the learned on their part sacrifice a great deal to their love of dates, more or less exact, to their desire to elucidate some point which had hitherto been considered obscure, and which their explanations do not always clear up, to the temptation to display their proficiency in the ingenious arts of manipulating facts and figures, culled from a dozen musty volumes into one consistent whole. Our interest in this strange case of imprisonment arises not alone from its completeness and duration, but also from our uncertainty as to the motives from which it was inflicted where erudition alone cannot suffice, where bookworm after bookworm, disdaining the conjectures of his predecessors, comes forward with a new theory founded on some forgotten document he has hunted out, only to find himself in his turn pushed into oblivion by some follower in his track. We must turn for guidance to some other light than that of scholarship, especially if, on strict investigation, we find that not one learned solution rests on a sound basis of fact. In the question before us, which, as we have said before, is a double one, 
asking not only who was the man in the iron mask, but why he was relentlessly subjected to this torture till the moment of his death. What we need in order to restrain our fancy is mathematical demonstration and not philosophical induction. While I do not go so far as to assert positively that Abbe Soulevy has once for all lifted the veil which hid the truth, I am yet persuaded that no other system of research is superior to his, and that no other suggested solution has so many presumptions in its favor. I have not reached this firm conviction on account of the great and prolonged success of our drama, but because of the ease with which all the opinions adverse to those of the Abbey may be annihilated by pitting them one against the other. The qualities that make for success being quite different in a novel and in a drama, I could easily have founded a romance on the fictitious loves of Buckingham and the Queen, or on a supposed secret marriage between her and Cardinal Mazarin, calling to my aid a work by St. Mihail, which the bibliophile declares he has never read, although it is assuredly neither rare nor difficult of access. I might also have merely expanded my drama, restoring to the personages therein their true names and relative positions, both of which the exigencies of the stage had sometimes obliged me to alter, and while allowing them to fill the same parts, making them act more in accordance with historical fact. No fable, however far-fetched, no grouping of characters, however improbable, can, however, destroy the interest which the innumerable writings about the Iron Mask excite. Although no two agree in details, and although each author and each witness declares himself in possession of complete knowledge. No work, however mediocre, however worthless even, which has appeared on this subject has ever failed of success, not even, for example, the strange jumble of Chevalier de Mouy, a kind of literary braggart who was in the pay of Voltaire, and whose work was published anonymously in 1746 by Pierre de Hont of the Hague. It is divided into six short parts, and bears the title, the Iron Mask, or The Admirable Adventures of the Father and the Son. An absurd romance by Renaud Warren, and one at least equally absurd by Madame Guenard, met with a like favorable reception. In writing for the theater, an author must choose one view of a dramatic situation, to the exclusion of all others, and in following out this central idea is obliged by the inexorable laws of logic to push aside everything that interferes with its development. A book, on the contrary, is written to be discussed. It brings under the notice of the reader all the evidence produced at a trial which has yet not reached a definite conclusion, and which in the case before us will never reach it, unless, which is most improbable, some lucky chance should lead to some new discovery. The first mention of the prisoner is to be found in the Secret Reports to Serve Persian History, in one twelve-month volume by an anonymous author, published by the Company of the Associated Booksellers of Amsterdam in 1745. Not having any other purpose, says the author, page 20 of the second edition, than to relate facts which are not known, about which no one has written, or about which it is impossible to be silent, we refer at once to a fact which has hitherto almost escaped notice concerning Prince Giaffe, Louis de Bourbon, Comte de Vermandois, son of Louis the Fourteenth and Mademoiselle de la Valliere, who was visited by Ali Mamajou, the Duc d'Orléans, the regent, in the fortress of Ispahan, the Bastille in which he had been imprisoned for several years. This visit had probably no other motive than to make sure that this prince was really alive, he having been reputed dead of the plague for over thirty years, and his obsequies having been celebrated in presence of an entire army. Cha Abbas, uh, Louis the Fourteenth, had a legitimate son, Sefi Mirza, Louis, Dauphin of France, and a natural son, Giaffe. These two princes, as dissimilar in character as in birth, 
were always rivals and always at enmity with each other. One day, Giafé so far forgot himself as to strike Sefi Mirza. Cha'abas, having heard of the insult offered to the heir to the throne, assembled his most trusted counsellors and laid the conduct of the culprit before them, conduct which, according to the law of the country, was punishable with death, an opinion in which they all agreed. One of the counsellors, however, sympathizing more than the others with the distress of Cha'abas, suggested that Giafé should be sent to the army, which was then on the frontiers of Fedrun, or Flanders, and that his death from plague should be given out a few days after his arrival. Then, while the whole army was celebrating his obsequies, he should be carried off by night in the greatest secrecy to the stronghold on the Isle of Ormus, or St. Marguerite, and there imprisoned for life. This course was adopted and carried out by faithful and discreet agents, the prince, whose premature death was mourned by the army, being carried by unfrequented roads to the Isle of Ormus, was placed in the custody of the commandant of the island, who had received orders beforehand not to allow any person whatever to see the prisoner. A single servant who was in possession of the secret was killed by the escort on the journey, and his face so disfigured by dagger thrusts that he could not be recognized. The commandant treated his prisoner with the most profound respect. He waited on him at meals, taking the dishes from the cooks at the door of the apartment, none of whom ever looked on the face of Giafé. One day it occurred to the prince to scratch his name on the back of a plate with his knife. One of the servants, into whose hands the plate fell, ran with it at once to the commandant, hoping he would be pleased and reward the bearer. But the unfortunate man was greatly mistaken, for he was at once made away with and that his knowledge of such an important secret might be buried with himself. Giafé remained several years in the castle Ormus, and was then transported to the fortress of Ispahan, the commandant of Ormus having received the governorship of Ispahan as a reward for faithful service. At Ispahan, as at Ormus, whenever it was necessary on account of illness or any other cause to allow anyone to approach the prince, he was always masked and several trustworthy persons have asserted that they have seen the masked prisoner often, and had noticed that he used the familiar too when addressing the governor, while the latter showed his charge with greatest respect. As Giafé survived Cha'abas and Sefi Mirza by many years, it may be asked why he was never set at liberty. But, it must be remembered, it would have been impossible to restore a prince to his rank and dignities whose tomb actually existed, and of whose burial there were not only living witnesses but documentary proofs, the authenticity of which it would have been useless to deny. So firm was the belief, which has lasted down to the present day, that Giafé died of the plague in camp when with the army on the frontiers of Flanders. Ali Hamajou died shortly after the visit he paid to Giafé. This version of the story, which is the original source of all the controversy on the subject, was at first generally received as true. On a critical examination, it fitted in very well with certain events which took place in the reign of Louis the Fourteenth. The Comte de Vermandois had in fact left the court for camp very soon after his reappearance there, for he had been banished by the king from his presence some time before for having, in company with several young nobles, indulged in the most reprehensible excesses. The king, says Mademoiselle de Montpensier, from Memoirs de Mademoiselle de Montpensier, Volume 13, page 474 of Memoirs Relatifs d'Histoire de France, second series, published by Petitot, had not been satisfied with his conduct and refused to see him. The young prince had caused his mother much sorrow, but had been so well lectured that it was believed that he had at last turned over a new leaf. He only remained four days at court, reached the camp before Arcourtray early in November 1683, 
was taken ill on the evening of the twelfth and died on the nineteenth of the same month of a malignant fever mademoiselle de montpensier says that the comte de vermandois fell ill from drink there are of course objections of all kinds to this theory for if during the four days the comte was at court he had struck the dauphin everyone would have heard of the monstrous crime and yet it is nowhere spoken of except in the memoirs de Perse. what renders the story of the blow still more improbable is the difference in age between the two princes the dauphin who already had a son the duc de bourgogne more than a year old was born the first november sixteen sixty one and was therefore six years older than the comte de vermandois but the most complete answer to the tale is to be found in a letter written by barbezieux to st mars dated thirteenth august sixteen ninety one when you have any information to send me relative to the prisoner who has been in your charge for twenty years i most earnestly enjoin on you to take the same precautions as when you write to m de louvois the comte de vermandois the official registration of whose death bears the date sixteen eighty five cannot have been twenty years a prisoner in sixteen ninety one six years after the man in the iron mask had been thus delivered over through the curiosity of the public the siecle de louis the fourteenth two volumes octavo from berlin in seventeen fifty one was published by voltaire under the pseudonym of m de francheville every one turned to this work which had been long expected for details relating to the mysterious prisoner about whom every one was talking voltaire ventured at length to speak more openly of the prisoner than any one had hitherto done and to treat as a matter of history an event long ignored by all historians volume two page eleven first edition chapter twenty five he assigned an approximate date to the beginning of this captivity some months after the death of cardinal mazarin sixteen sixty one he gave a description of the prisoner who according to him was young and dark-complexioned his figure was above the middle height and well proportioned his features were exceedingly handsome and his bearing was noble when he spoke his voice inspired interest he never complained of his lot and gave no hint as to his rank nor was the mask forgotten the part which covered the chin was furnished with steel springs which allowed the prisoner to eat without uncovering his face and lastly he fixed the date of the death of the nameless captive who was buried he says in seventeen o four by night in the parish church of st paul voltaire's narrative coincided with the account given in the memoir de pace save for the omission of the incident which according to the memoirs led in the first instance to the imprisonment of Giaffe. the prisoner says voltaire was sent to the ill st marguerite and afterwards to the bastille in charge of a trusty official he wore his mask on the journey and his escort had orders to shoot him if he took it off the marquis de louvois visited him while he was on the islands and when speaking to him stood all the time in a respectful attitude the prisoner was removed to the bastille in sixteen ninety where he was lodged as comfortably as could be managed in that building he was supplied with everything he asked for especially with the finest linen and the costliest lace in both of which his taste was perfect he had a guitar to play on his table was excellent and the governor rarely sat in his presence. End of section one. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.